Well, the book of Psalms really is a book of praises. We've been studying the centerpiece of the Bible. It's right in the middle, and indeed it's a centerpiece of the Bible. We've been studying the centerpiece of the Bible for almost a year, and we've seen all kinds of Psalms. We've seen all kinds of themes in the book of Psalms. And even when you have sort of a sad theme, we call them Psalms of Lament, where the psalmist pours his heart out in sorrow, in heartache, there's a, an ending usually that, that relates to praise. Even his lament is often a lack of praise. It's a lack of praise in his own heart. He feels like God is distant. He feels like he can't get to God though he wants to. His concern is one of praise, really. And the solution is one of being restored to God's praise by his grace. Or when others are doing bad, when the world seems like it is indeed going to hell in a handbasket, when others revile you or revile him and revile his name, the concern in the Psalms is primarily that they don't praise God. They don't recognize their creator. It's all about praise. More than a month ago, I started cataloging all the things about praise that I was seeing in the Psalms that we've been studying it these many months. Different facets about praise in the book of Psalms. Things that might seem to be intention at first, but in fact necessarily go together. We've been saying they're both and kind of things. Now, all told, I came up with about 22 different both and facets of praise in the Psalms. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at 16 of them. We've got 16 under our belt now. Things like God's worship should be constant and corporate, every day in everything, and like this, Sunday morning, getting together as the church. God's worship should be Bible-formed and Bible-filled. His worship should be of head and heart, mind and affections or emotions. We've said that God's worship should be heavy and happy because there's a manifold description of emotions in the Psalms and a manifold description of God's attributes in the Psalms, sometimes showing him distant and big and almost scary, and other times near and dear and close and caring. We said that God's worship should be heavy and happy in light of that. And we saw so many other things as well. So some of these have overlapped but I've wanted to emphasize something distinct in each one of these, and hence we have 22. So we're not done yet. Today I have six more to round it out, six more both-and angles to praise as we wrap up just this mini-series within our broader uh, study of the book of Psalms, mini-series on, on praise. These six facets of praise today, we could say, have to do with the aims of praise. The question is, What are we expecting from this or any Sunday morning? What do we want to get out of it, we could say? What do we want to happen? What are we after when we come together, when we come before him together like we're doing this Sunday? Well, the first, we should keep in mind that worship is for giving and it's getting. It is both giving to God, and it is a getting from God, receiving from him. Now, each of those is so important, so fundamental. So let me take more time on this first point than the other five, and let me focus on each of those two G words separately. 
God's worship is, in the Psalms and elsewhere, a giving to God. The Psalms are not afraid of that language of giving to God, giving him thanks, giving him praise. It's all over the Psalms. Psalm 92, verse 1. It's good to give thanks and to praise his name. Those are parallel. It's good to give thanks and to praise his name. The same thing. To give him praise is to give him thanks. Praise is a kind of giving. In fact, the Hebrew word for thanks or praise is a word that has at its root a Hebrew word for hand. So it has the connotation of bringing, carrying, throwing, casting, hurling. And can you imagine the word picture there? Can you see that in your mind's eye? Throwing compliments on God is what it means to praise him, to give thanks to him. It's heaping up accolades. There's something about giving in the very nature of verbalizing thanks and praise. Similar is the word in English for ascribe, we see in so many psalms. Psalm 29, for instance, says, Ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due his name. Ascribe, meaning, meaning describe it and put it on him. Put it to him, give it to him. It's his due. It's the glory due his name. It's due him. Praise is due him because he's the creator. Because he made it all. Because it's for him. Because he's powerful. Because he's good. Because he's the judge. And he will bring justice. Worship is the creator's due. We, you could say, we owe it to him. Now here's where it needs to be stressed that worship, hence, is not about us. And it's not about our preferences. And worship can and should happen apart from our ideal preferences about a church worship service. In a sense, worship is not primarily even about our feelings. If by feelings we mean felt needs. As if the goal of Sunday morning is to work higher up Maslow's pyramid his hierarchy of need so that you move from self-esteem to self-actualization. Self-esteem, self-actualization, that may or may not happen for you in any given Sunday, but it may or may not have anything to do with true worship. You may feel better going to church, and you may have glorified yourself and not him. It's about giving to him. And so I stressed this two weeks ago, that worship is to be awe-filling, not amusing. It's to be exultant, not entertaining. At least that's not the purpose of it. But giving praise, giving praise, that concept of giving to God can be misunderstood and it can be dangerous. Giving praise to God, biblically speaking, does not imply that he needs something, that he's lacking something, that you have it, he needs it, you give it, and he's improved by it. He needs nothing. 
He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need our worship. Our worship doesn't improve him. It doesn't better him. Psalm 50 is key here. Would you turn there? Psalm 50. We're here. God speaks and he confronts worship, so-called worship, that is the wrong kind of giving. He confronts it. And it's serious. It is it is so, so serious because the wrong kind of giving to God isn't worship, it's blasphemy. It turns the creator-creation relationship on its ear. And that's what God confronts in Psalm 50. In verse 12, he says, If I were hungry, I'm not ever, I don't eat, but if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I wouldn't ask you for a sandwich. The world and its fullness are mine. I own it. You don't have something that I don't own. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Do you think that sacrifices are for the filling up of my belly? Like, if you don't come with my sacrifices, my stomach will growl. I'll go hungry, and I may even die. No, that's not what sacrifices are for. So God says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You see that? Thanksgiving. In response to him, perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. You see how it works? He's the giver, we're the getter. He needs nothing, we need everything. Praise is getting from God. Worship from one angle is coming desperate and dependent and needy. We go to him because we're needy. We don't go to him because he's needy. Allow me to just heap up some evidence for this. So let's thumb through some more psalms. Turn back to Psalm 30. Psalm 30. Let's run through several psalms that show us this order, this cosmic order that's so important for worship. Psalm 30, verse 10. Hear, O Lord, be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. We're not his helpers. He's our helper. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. Not me. I didn't fix my attitude. You've turned my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. You've clothed me with gladness. And why did he do that? That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. You see, praise isn't the giving. It's the response to the getting. Remember Psalm 42? Turn there. Remember how it begins, that wonderful picture of being desperate and dependent like a deer. Wanting to get to God and not being able to get him or enough of him to quench your thirst. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? I don't bring my thirst to you and commend it. Look how thirsty I am, Lord. Become thirsty and desperate. He must be our quench. And if he doesn't appear to us and show himself life-giving, 
and soul-quenching, then we will perish. Psalm 51, verse 16 says, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. There's a sense in which God isn't pleased or delighted in sacrifices and burnt offerings because the sacrifices of God, the next verse, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's the real sacrifice. And out of that flows obedience, or in the new covenant, flows giving, financial giving to the church, to the ministry of the Lord's work. That kind of giving, the Lord does not delight in. If it's a kind of giving like he needed it, like you improved it, like like it was yours to begin with, no. It should spring from a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart that knows mercy and forgiveness and is freed up to acknowledge that the gifts are his. In Psalm 90, remember this, how Moses prayed that we'd be satisfied in the morning with his loving kindness, that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. How desperate and dependent to acknowledge to the all-satisfying God that he must satisfy us. And Psalm 116, one more. Look at this. Psalm 116, in verse 12. What do we give back to God then in light of all that he's done? The psalmist says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? How do I respond to his grace and his gifts, his goodness and his care? What shall I give back? Psalmist answers, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I'll keep coming. I'll keep being needy. I'll keep depending on him. I'll bring a cup and say, Lord, you must fill it. Salvation and more so. And in you alone, my cup runneth over. But it's not something I give back to the Lord. I bring a cup. I just... Lord, you've got to put what's inside. Paul, the Apostle Paul said the same thing in Acts 17 when he preached to the Areopagus. He said that the God who made everything in it, made everything, heaven and earth and all in it, he doesn't live in temples. He doesn't have a house like Psalm 50. He doesn't eat. He doesn't need blood. He doesn't need goats. And Paul says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the capital G giver, and all giving is in response to his his gift. And the gift is Jesus himself. Remember Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who've been trying to earn and work, trying to to get reward, trying to make grade, come unto me, you who've given up on that, you who've cashed in your chips knowing you can't get there. Come unto me and I will give you rest, Jesus says. You rest in him. You rest in his work. You put down your gifts when you come to him 
and you take up the gift. The gift that Jesus worked on our behalf. He died in our place. He was righteous for us. He's what Psalm 24 was pointing to. Psalm 24 asked the question, who can enter into God's presence? And it tells us the answer. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, and doesn't swear deceitfully. Clean hands, pure heart, innocent innocent soul, innocent tongue. That's who can come into God's presence. And Jesus is the only one who meets that criterion. He's the only one of clean hands, pure heart, no falsehood. He's the one by which we can enter into God's presence. We can rest in him. We pray that you know that. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you think that you're a Christian. This is talking about becoming a Christian, resting in Jesus and his work on your behalf where he was righteous for you and died in your place and was raised to life. Resting in that is what the Bible calls faith or belief or trust. You give up on your weary and heavy laden ways and you rest. You lean upon him. You call upon him. We pray that would happen today. Christians, we pray that we would keep getting from him, lifting up the cup of salvation to him, And, yes, acknowledge that praise. There's something about it. Giving it to him. Giving it to him. It's his. Giving and getting. Secondly, the church's worship should both be exalting and edifying. Exalting and edifying. In other words, it's vertical. It's to God. And it's horizontal. It's with each other. And it's for each other, in a sense. Now, we have to keep reminding ourselves of this. We have to keep insisting on it in our highly individualistic culture. Most of us, if we're a part of anything that's a group, view ourselves as quite the individual in the group, right? We we view ourselves as an individual who happens to participate in this. We don't view ourselves as a As a whole, we have a hard time thinking in corporate terms these days. So we have to remember that, yes, worship can be, should be constant, every day, everywhere, anything throughout the week. Uh, Worship can be family. Worship can be by yourself alone with the Bible and on your knees in prayer. But worship is also to be corporate. It's to be together. It's to be with the church and of the church. Which means we couldn't have done this, what we're doing right now, what we have done so far this morning. We couldn't have done it alone. We couldn't have done it by by ourselves. You couldn't do it by simply listening to a sermon or even watching a sermon online. You can't do it simply by listening to praise music and reading your Bible alone. You don't have church alone on a mountain. You can have fun. You can skip church on a mountain. But you don't have church by yourself. It's an oxymoron. Church is assembly. That's what the word means. Assembly. It's the people who come together. It's what we do. So we should meet together. 
God commands it. He inhabits the praises of his people. And more than just we should come together, we should also be constantly conscious of our togetherness when we are together. Take advantage of the fact that our worship center is a half circle and you can see other people. Every now and then, take your eyes off the songs, the words on the screens, and look around. Look at others singing. Know that this is not you alone, by yourself, or in some little compartment. You just happen to be in the same room with other people who are also in the God compartment. Don Whitney puts this so well. He says, The thought that the church at worship is an accidental convergence in one place of a number of isolated individuals who practice in hermetically sealed compartments their own private devotional exercise is foreign to the New Testament picture of the church. By nature, the church is for each other. Yes, to God, but for each other, exalting and edifying. And there's so much in the Psalms that's horizontal. It's to others. It's for others. So look at Psalm 100. Turn there. Psalm 100. It's a short one. It's a great one to memorize. And it's good to know that this is an invitation and it's an exhortation. It's to ourselves that we say this and it's to each other. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. You see that? That's not vertical. That's horizontal. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know the Lord, he is God. It's he who made us and we are his. We're his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That's calling on others. That's the psalmist calling on God's people to sing, to praise, to rejoice, to give thanks, to shout. And as God's people sing songs like this, or this song as it is, well, they're calling on each other to rejoice, to call on him, to give thanks to him, to praise him, to shout to him, to sing to his great name. So notice the difference in the songs that we sing. A lot of the songs we sing are not vertical. It's a mingling of vertical and horizontal. And it can be spoken to each other and to God at the same time. But it shouldn't just be, as Don Whitney said, pretending like we're in separate, hermetically sealed compartments alone with God. It's good to close your eyes, perhaps, at times and remove distraction. It's also good to open them and realize you're not alone. The third thing that we see about praise in the Psalms, the aims of the praise in the Psalms, is that they should teach and transform. Teach and transform. Now, we can't take time to look at these this morning, but it's all over the place. Just go looking for it. Realize that so many of the Psalms talk about an encounter with God that transforms. So something happens when God is seen, seen in his word, known in his songs. 
where his truth is meditated upon, where there is an encounter with him, there result certain emotions, whether that's fear or awe or joy or wonder or satisfaction or peace. That truth-filled encounter that the Psalms talk about, that Isaiah 6 shows us, Really, we get from any place in God's word where we read his word and it describes him or tells us his promises. What happens? Well, hopefully it helps, right? It encourages, it strengthens, it changes, it straightens what's crooked, it fixes what's broken, it redirects which is wayward. It should make us flee sin. It should make us hate sin and love righteousness. It should make us want to be like him on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. It should make us want to seek him more on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Here I have to lean upon the ever-wise Tim Keller, who puts it so well. Listen to this. In order for us to worship, Our mind, emotions, and will have to be moved. Notice will has to be moved. They're all organically connected. Merely learning truth about God is intellectual education, not worship. For example, I can know intellectually that God is good, but still be worried silly about something that's coming up this week. If the morning sermon is on the sovereignty and goodness of God, I haven't worshipped unless that truth descends from my mind and touches my emotions and my will. I worship then when I realize I've been trusting in my own abilities, not the sovereignty and goodness of God. When I pull my affections off the other things I've been trusting in, which is why I'm anxious, they're shaky things, and I put them on God, then I'll be touched emotionally. I may cry, I may not. It depends on what kind of personality I have, but the truth will affect my emotions. A bit more. He says, my will is also affected when I decide to change the way I handle that threat next week. Worship is grasping a truth about God and then letting that truth strike you in the center of your being. It thrills you, comforts you. That's when the truth has moved from left brain to right brain, from mind to heart. On the spot, it will change the way you feel. The whole brain, the whole person is affected. That could happen in singing, that could happen during sermons. Hopefully it happens ongoingly as we leave and apply the truth that we hear and we're reminded of when we're together. Be on the watch for worship that transforms you. Fourth, God's worship is to be covenantal and contagious. Covenantal and contagious. What I mean is, it's for insiders And it's, in a sense, for outsiders. It's for those of us in the covenant. And yet, in a sense, it's for those who are not yet in the covenant. Now, Sunday morning is primarily for those in the covenant. It is primarily for the church. It is fundamentally, this very meeting is fundamentally a meeting of the church. We're doing things that only Christians can do, we believe. We must be forgiven before we can come to him. Oh, if you're not a Christian, you can sing along with us. We're glad for you to do that. But we think 
True worship only comes through Jesus who reconciles us to the God we've sinned against, rebelled against, and gone astray from. We do things that only Christians can do. In that sense, it's covenantal. It's of those who are of the new covenant that's described in Jeremiah 31. His law written on our hearts, our desires changed, our sins forgiven. He, our God, we, his people. But Sunday morning is not an exclusive meeting, is it? It's not an exclusive meeting. There are some religious organizations that have buildings without windows. Now, we don't have windows in here, but we got windows out there. I don't know, personally, I'd be a little skeptical of any kind of religious organization that you can't walk up to and just do this. See what they're doing in there. I mean, are they sacrificing goats? Is someone's head spinning around on its neck? I I just want to know. You know, Masonic Lodge on the street, you can't see. Some Jehovah's Witnesses buildings, you, you can't see. Mormon buildings, you can't see in. You don't know. We have windows on purpose because this is not an exclusive meeting. Non-Christians can come, and we want them to come, and we think that many good things can happen when they're here, even though this is fundamentally a meeting of the church and for the church. So you see in the Psalms an invitation to come that goes beyond God's people. It calls on the nations and the peoples, the coastlands, to come to see that he's God, to know that he's judge, to know that he's merciful and kind and loving, to be saved and to join us in worship. Many psalms call us to do that, call on the world to do that even. Now in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about this very scenario. He describes a kind of worship where unbelievers would come in and it would be intelligible by God's grace. The singing, the the preaching would be in some ways simplistic enough, understandable enough that by God's grace and the spirit at work in their hearts, they would, he says, be convicted, called to account. The secrets of their heart would be disclosed And they would fall on their face and worship, saying, God is really among you. Now that's shorthand for what we call conversion. That's shorthand for someone becoming a Christian. That's shorthand for getting saved or being forgiven or having a new heart, being born again. What Paul says is there's conviction and then it results in worship. Now we know there's something in between there repentance and faith and trust in Jesus' blood and righteousness. You have to understand something of the cross and, and Jesus dying in your place. But, but he just puts it in shorthand so we would see quickly the aim and the goal. That there would be a kind of worship that is vertical, focused on God, exultant and covenantal. The church would be doing its thing. There would be seeking edification, one another. And yet, Believers may sense, unbelievers may come in and sense that it's the real deal. That God is real. That they would hear the gospel and they would be saved. So good, biblical, deep, theological, yet simple worship can be used by God evangelistically, missionally, you could say. 
which means it's a good thing to invite your non-Christian friends to come on a Sunday morning. You say, Ryan, they wouldn't understand so much of it. I mean, sometimes you use big terms, and they wouldn't understand so much of it. Great. Take them out to lunch afterwards and explain that stuff. It's a great opportunity, right? Come listen to this guy. He talks about a bunch of weird stuff. Let him know it's a meeting of the church. It's for the church. There are going to be some things you don't understand, but we'll meet afterwards, and I'll tell you whatever you want to know, at least what I know of what you want to know. Invite your friends to come on Sunday morning praying that 1 Corinthians 14 would happen, that God's worship here would be covenantal and contagious. The fifth thing we need to say is very similar. It's that God's worship summons and it sends. According to the Psalms, God's worship summons and it sends. This overlaps with number four, but it speaks more to what happens when we leave this place after it's all done. Worship sends us on our way. Worship has a missionary inclination to it, we could say. Because it has the same aim as mission. The glory of God. Why do we say among the nations that the Lord is to be praised? Why do we send people far away to North Africa? Why do we do mission trips in Guatemala? Because there are places where his glory is not recognized, where the gospel is not known. It's an issue of worship, right? It's a shortage of worship in this world, and God is jealous for more of it and deeper worship. And so, his worship summons and it sends. He brings us in with corporate worship like this morning, but he changes us and he equips us. And he changes us and equips us to go out and to proclaim, to send and to give so that others can go to faraway places and to speak, whether we're in our own country or in another. You see this, you know, in Psalm 67. That's one psalm we've already looked at. God, be gracious to us and bless us. Cause your face to shine upon, shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, that your salvation would be known among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O Lord. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 96 is another one of these worship missionary psalms. And it says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. The smallest psalm, 117. Maybe you'll read that today over lunch or keep reading into 118. That's 117 is the smallest and it's also one of these missionary praise psalms. It summons and it sends. Lastly, another similar thing, we have to say that his praise is to be sung and spoken. Sung and spoken. Now, this introduces maybe a new category of praise to you. So let's pick at this a little bit. What do I mean by it being sung? You know that. It says sing, sing to the Lord. We do it. So you're familiar with it. You've seen it. But what does it mean that his praise is also to be spoken? Well, Psalm 145. Turn back there as we wrap this up. Look at Psalm 145 again. This psalm, in my opinion, is the best at mingling so many different aspects of praise. 
You might want to read this psalm today over lunch and just note the verbs that David calls us to do or says that he will do. Verbs. So like in verse 16, it's praise to God and it's directed to God. He says, you, in verse 16, you open your hand. It's talking directly to God and that is praise. But then verses 1 and 2, look back there, you see personal resolve. I will. I will. I will extol. I will bless. Every day I will bless. You see in verse 5, personal meditation on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. I'll think. I'll ruminate over. You see in verse 4, what you might call family discipleship. Religious training of kids. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This is talking about training up kids, right? The next generation getting it, getting the Bible stories, getting the Bible itself, getting to learn and love the Bible because they know the forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Now, another thing it mingles here, look at verse 6, is just a reference to a general they. They. Who's the they in verse 6? They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. The they could just be parents, like verse 4 talks about, one generation shall commend your works to another. But I think it's talking about something more general. I think it's talking about God's people in general. They. They all. All those who know your wondrous works and glorious splendor. They will speak of the might of your deeds. They will declare your greatness. Verse 7, they will pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and also sing aloud. You see also in verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Have you ever thought about why the Psalms don't just say sing, but they also say declare, tell, proclaim, say? I think it's what we call in the New Testament the one another's. It's what Paul calls speaking the truth in love. Now we know that phrase, even the world knows that phrase, speaking the truth in love means you're ugly, but I love you. You know, I can say whatever I'm about to say in critique as long as I say, no, no, I'm just speaking the truth in love here, right? I'm just speaking the truth in love here. You have a lot of hair growing out of that mole. <laughs> love you, brother. You're, you okay? You okay? I was in love. Speaking the truth in love is, is not I get to pick on you or even point things out in love. Maybe that a bit. But think just more proactively. Think more praise-oriented. Speak truth. Not just truth about you. How about truth about him? Speak that truth in love. Praise him to each other is what this is talking about. In informal conversations, not just in our songs, not just in our corporate meetings, but when we leave here or in our community group. I think sometimes community group can look like this. There's the first half of it that's sports and food or politics or TV. YouTube clips. And then there's this get around in these chairs and get your Bible out and do Bible stuff now. And that's where we ask each other hard questions. But the Psalms 
view of God's praise being mingled throughout life and littered throughout conversation and, and it being aimed at each other, to each other, the cheering on of each other. One psalm scholar described these as praise conversations. Cheering each other on to God and cheering God on to each other, right? Cheering him to each other. Let me just give you some examples. Like in Psalm 22 when it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, not just to the world, but to my brothers. And it doesn't say sing, it says tell. Psalm 40. Oh Lord, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us are many, and I will proclaim and tell them. I will tell of them. And it goes on to say, yet they're more than can be told. There are many wondrous deeds to talk about, so we better get busy. Later in Psalm 40, it says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And those who love your salvation, may they say continually, great is the Lord. Psalm 66, come and hear all you who fear God. And I will tell you what he's done for my soul. When's the last time you told someone what he's done for your soul? Whether your testimony of conversion or what he did yesterday, how he proves himself faithful today, how his loving kindness is over all his works. Psalm 89, with my mouth I will make known your faithfulness. Psalm 107, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let him say that they're redeemed. Let him describe it. Let him praise him to others. You know, in Psalm 145, when it talks about passing this on to the next generation, the, America, the ESV at verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your works to another. But this is the word for praise, or a word for praise. The NAS gets it, I think, better when it says, One generation shall praise your works to another. Do you see how that mingles the vertical and the horizontal? You're praising him in front of others. You're praising him to others. You're encouraging praise to them. You're doing praise yourself. One way I, in the past, have talked about this, at least to myself and things I've prayed to the Lord, is just that God and his ways and his works would be quick on my lips. I want him to be quick on my lips. Oh, he is not quick on my lips like he should be. But I pray that he would be quick on my lips some days. And some days he's more quick on my lips than others, and I'm thankful for that. So you might say, Ryan, this just isn't my personality. I'm just, I'm not a woman. I'm not emotional, right? You might be a guy, sort of resolute in that you don't gush. You don't look for a micro window to just let your feelings fly. I get it. Or you might think, Ryan, what you're talking about sounds like it's going to be showy. I don't like that because it's going to look like, you know, I quoted half of a Bible verse. And as I said that to my friend, my Christian friend, they have to be thinking, oh, show off. I don't know that verse. Maybe you don't want to be showy. Maybe 
You think, if we're talking about doing this in front of non-Christians, that sounds pushy. I don't want to shove it down their throats. So what would I say to that? I would say it's, it's commanded. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you think your personality is. It's commanded. It is commanded that you declare, that you tell, that you proclaim, that you say, that you ascribe. It's commanded. Like, don't lie. Like, don't commit adultery. Like, be holy. It's commanded. Declare, tell, proclaim. It's right for you to do it. It's simply a recognition of reality to do it. It's like saying, the sky is blue today. It's obvious. Or, boy, it's dry right now. It's simply a recognition of reality to say, God is good. God is loving. His loving kindness is over all his works. All his works shall praise him. The mountains are in his hand. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. It's simply a recognition of reality, like sky, blue. It's right. It's loving. It's loving for others. Yeah, it's maybe slightly risky, but it's loving to them. It stirs up their affection, their thoughts of God. It's exemplary for them. It serves them. And of course, in doing so, it's helping yourself, right? You speak of him, and you'll be more likely to think on him, and then more likely to say something more about him. It's a happy thing. It's a glad-making thing to say, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my joy. The Lord is my portion. And there is none other. It's a happy thing. It's not just a matter of personality. We all loosen our tongues when we're excited about these things or when we're excited about anything. We saw that a few weeks ago from C.S. Lewis, remember? He says, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world is full of praise, not just to God, but about anything, whatever people like. And he gives all these examples. And then he says, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they also spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. We commend his works to the world to each other, to our kids, to ourselves. Ideally, it should just happen naturally. My compulsion just oozes from us, right? Because we've tasted and seen that he's good. But it can and should be a matter of discipline and resolve decision to do this, to, to try it, to try to do more of it, to practice it, to pray that the Lord would help you to do it, to pray that he would be quick on your lips, to not only pray that you'd be satisfied with his loving kindness this morning or tomorrow morning, but that you would sing of it or say of it. You would speak and declare that he's good. No, no, don't fake it. And that's why some of the the battle here isn't just saying things, It's not just brain and mouth. A huge part of the battle is Bible, isn't it? Some of us don't have, I'll say this in first person, I I often don't 
speak of him as freely and as happily as I should on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday because I haven't looked in his word for what to say and what to see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let it be like those apostles in Acts 4. Remember, we cannot help but speak the things which we have heard and seen. Don't be like stupid idols who have ears but don't hear, eyes but don't see. They have mouths but they don't speak. Not us. So we need not more cliches, not trite sayings, not vague religiosity. We need Bible. We need truth. We need God himself.